0: A podcast one production.
1: G'day, I'm Tim Harcourt and welcome to the Airport Economist. In this first series, I'll take you to the key markets of the world where you can do business and do it well. I'll guide you through the economics, politics and social history of each place and talk to an expert about the tricks and traps of doing business in each particular market. But first, strap yourself in, because in this episode, we're off to Japan. When I was a kid, my whole family went over and stayed in Japan for for six months in 1969. And it was really unusual then, because Japan was a very insular country. Not many Japanese had been out of Japan, and we were foreigners. And I was, to top it off, redheaded. I was a little red-headed four-year-old. And I would take the Tokyo subway and want people to sit next to me. And people wouldn't want to sit next to me. Not that they were hostile. They are just so amazed by this little Western kid with red hair. And uh, in a very exciting day, I took the Shinkansen, the bullet train, which then was brand new. The very fast train from Tokyo to Osaka to the expo, which to the Japanese was amazing because... In those days, Japanese didn't travel, they didn't have much, much connection with the world, so the expo, with its New Zealand, Brazil, Malaysia, Australian pavilions, was a way in which the Japanese sort of saw the whole world. But that was, you know, that was a very long time ago. Well, fast forward 35 years on, and I went back to Japan, I went back to an expo, this time in Nagoya, in the Aichi Prefecture, And I wondered, given that Japan was now one of the most travelled, most sophisticated, most international places on earth, why would you need an expo? Well, the reason is technology. Because companies like Toyota, which is actually based in Nagoya, use the expo to show their latest and greatest, their next big thing, their latest technology, to show to people what the future is going to hold. In the same way that the bullet train blew me away when I was four years old in Osaka, The amazing thing to me was they had this robot who was actually a receptionist in the information counter. Hello,
0: welcome to Japan.
1: Dressed like a a jail flight attendant. And she would direct people where they wanted to go in terms of eating and different pavilions and so on. And she was so lifelike that a few male patrons, foreigners, some Australians among them, got a little bit uh, drunk on a few too many Sapporo beers and they started actually asking her out. And not only did this happen, but also the programmers had anticipated that this would happen. And they directed her to say, questions questions of a personal personal nature should be directed to my my manager. manager. Now, that reply, I don't think could be lost in translation, and it was pretty funny to watch, as it was pretty amazing to see the difference between the two expos. To help us unlock the mysteries of Japan, I'm joined by Richard Gruppetta, Principal of Laneway Consulting and Trade and Invest Advisor for the Japanese Government's commercial arm, Jetro. Richard first went to Japan as an exchange student and then built up a distinguished career both in the Australian Embassy in Tokyo and in the private sector. Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's amazing when I first went to Japan as a little kid, I took the bullet train and just loved it. And then you as a, a teenager first went to Japan in high school, and you say that things are very different now in Japan and how they relate to foreigners in, in general. How has that changed since you had your first
0: experience in Japan? Yes, yeah, it's, it's changed a lot. Um, probably the closest way to, to picture the experience I went through as, as a 16-year-old in a place called Nara, Japan, is to watch that movie's Memoirs of a Geisha. <laughs> I lived in regional Japan. I lived in a very traditional part. Uh, Nara is just south of Kyoto. Very, very similar. Very much families and, and, and culture that runs over a 1,000 years. And there's this interest locally to maintain that culture. So every village you live in has a village head and that village head says what goes and that culture still exists today but as a 16 year old what i found was um it's difficult to break through and make the relationship but one thing about japan and you know embedded within the japanese culture is the level of loyalty and anyone who's who's interacted with japan japanese or even done you know karate karate or anything culturally japanese you'll realize over time and with time you create this bond and that bond is forever, and that bond is what helps you going forward in life. In in terms of a Japanese relationship, Australia signed that commercial agreement with Japan
1: in 1957. Blackjack McCure Oh, very good. Yeah, signing it with the Japanese government, and Japan was sort of the beachhead for Australia into Asia, into the Asian century, and for many years, Japan did dominate trade and investment for Australia. Do you think that sort of plateaued off and now people are more keen on China and India and
0: Southeast Asia? Australian and I guess global exporters, when they look at Asia, are in a sense influenced by the media. And the media has focused a lot around the Chinese growth miracle, which it is a miracle. It's fantastic over there. But it's important to remember there's more than just one country in the Asian region, And Japan is the world's third largest economy. If you want to compare it to Australia, the GDP of Japan is five trillion US, which is uh, four times larger than Australia's GDP. And that in itself is a great thing. But when you do business with Japan, it's important to remember that the Japanese economy or the Japanese business machine is not just within the borders of Japan. It goes right throughout Asia. It props up the economies of India, Thailand, Malaysia, and China itself. So if you're looking at the engine of of the economy of Japan, actually most of it is outside the borders in Asia. So the benefit of doing business with Japan today, is going in through Japan gives you business opportunity right throughout the Asian region. So do you think you go to Japan because of the
1: network, the reach of Japanese companies throughout Asia and the world? Not not the Japanese economy itself, would you say?
0: Yeah, the, the decision makers are always going to be in Japan. So there, there'll be times when, for example, if you're a auto parts manufacturer selling to a Japanese company in Thailand, you could go just direct. But having a relationship with the with headquarters, say for example in Toyota outside of Nagoya, that's a much better thing to have. Business in Japan relies on relationships. And it's a relationship and trust business arrangement. And once you've developed that relationship, it opens the doors to lots of new opportunities. So what would you say are the top
1: opportunities for Australian businesses looking to do business in Japan at the moment?
0: The first thing to consider is Japan's a much more open country than it was, say, 15 or 20 years ago. It's it's very well developed. It's gone through that growth period that China's going through right now. It knows how to do business with the West. It's much more aligned to doing business with countries like Australia. I mean, Australia is very much an accepted partner in the Japanese economy or with Japanese business people. We have a long history together, a very positive one, since that uh, agreement you mentioned being signed in '57. Um, Our branding in Japan is very strong. So if you look to the uh, food or agriculture type products, seafood, but we're also known for our high technology and we're actually known for being a step ahead, which is great. So financial services, a great area to be looking at for Japan. Um, The city of Tokyo is, is trying to compete hard with Hong Kong, Singapore, and now, of course, Shanghai in being known as the financial capital for the region. And with that, the local the local government is is providing incentives for financial services to enter the market. And if you look at fintech, it's technology that services the financial services sector. Australia is actually very advanced. We do things through our iPhones much quicker than most countries around the world. And looking at fintech, the opportunities in Japan lie within the foreign. Financial services firms, which are in Tokyo. So, say for example, if you're a Melbourne, Sydney, or San Jose-based technology company who are servicing, uh, for example, a a Merrill Lynch or a Goldman Sachs or an HSBC, if you're servicing them in your own market, there's very strong likelihood you can also help them in Japan, and that gets you a, a foot in the door into the Japanese market, servicing foreign. Financial services firms who could use your technology, but once you're in the market, you get track record, and then you expand over to domestic Japanese financial services firms. There are over a thousand large Japanese financial services firms just in Tokyo, and that's a massive market to be looking at. Is that a paradox, Richard? That
1: Japan has the latest robots, the latest technology, but you don't see many ATMs. There's cash everywhere. There's no FPOS. Do <laughs> you <laughs> think sure. there's a way to go? There's a way to go in terms of
0: financial. Technology and services? Yep, good point. Japan is a very, very traditional country. It's a country that dislikes change and disliking change is actually good for you because if you're learning the rules of how to do business in Japan, things don't change. So once you learn the rules, you can use them to your advantage. In in terms of the use of technology, Japan is very, very good at creating and making and building technology items such as you know cars, computers and other items that we use day to day although they're terrible at using them themselves. So I had a conversation with uh, one of my old friends who was on the on the bullet train, the Shinkansen, last night, and we're texting back and forth, and he says to me, you know what? The Shinkansen, the bullet train, doesn't have Wi-Fi. And it's like, but why not? So things like that, they're quite behind, and there are opportunities for Australian companies to come in and to fill those gaps and to introduce that technology.
1: Now, you've got this background in... Japan and loyalty and and uh, an affinity with the place. For an Australian business, with, without your connections, how would you get a foot in the door in in Japan if you started with nothing, without the connections that you've built up?
0: It's it's very important to. Well, you can always buy connections through consultants. That's that's just a, a given, I guess. But the the important thing to do is to do your homework and read up. And there's plenty available on understanding the markets and the opportunities in the Japanese market. And and of course, you can go to um, my team at, at Jetro uh, in Japan, the Japanese government, and they have reams of information uh, through their websites around certain sectors and industries. Austrade, the Australian Trade Commission, the state governments um, from the US or state governments from Australia have great information and context or services that can help you open doors in there. But the first thing you need to do is read up on your sector in the market, look at what your competitors may be doing there, look at your sector within that market, and then go and visit. And spend your first visit there learning about the market. So if you're flying to the EU, London, go via Tokyo and just give yourself two, three, four days to learn around the market. And you can go into a Jetro office or into your local embassy office and or commercial office and learn about or ask questions about your sector and how it's performing there. Now, you mentioned a,
1: a thousand years of tradition in, in NARA. What, what customs do you think Australian businesses need to know when they come to
0: Japan? Because it's a very proud culture, isn't it? It is, it is. And it, it does rely on you being patient. It, things do take time, but the journey is a long one, but it's, it's a quite a, a structured journey. Japanese are very, very structured, detailed in, in everything they do. If you want to compare it to doing business in other countries, they're very similar to the Swiss or the Germans, being very precise, which is a culture you, you eventually begin to appreciate because whatever they say, usually it's what they do. A quick tip of advice, if you're ever going to a meeting, always, always be five minutes early. Never be on time and never be late. Five minutes early, general rule. Respect is defined by your appreciation of that person and being late shows a lack of respect. So it's important just to remember that. What about dining and entertainment? Do you go out to eat with Japanese customers? How do you do it? Yes. Who pays? It's, uh, usually they do, but it's it's one of the most important parts of doing business in Japan. So one thing you need to consider is you'll have the meeting with your potential business partner, and you'll do your pitch. And maybe the first one will just be a business meeting and you walk out and thank you very much and that's it. Second or third, it's when they invite you out to lunch or dinner afterwards, is when you know that there's a serious opportunity here in terms of business. And what you will find is the real opportunity or the real personality and discussion comes out during that dinner or lunch. And while alcohol is involved, um, it's the open discussion within the dinner is where your your counterparts will really tell you what they feel about your product or your service and will define your potential as well. It's very important, though, to not get carried away at dinners. Remember, you are on call for business. You are not there to have fun. I've seen plenty of uh, foreign business people get a little bit carried away, maybe drink a little bit too much, and probably say probably more than they should. And it's very easy to do, but be there, be friendly, but remember that the real business negotiations tend to happen outside of the office or the the, the business meeting.
1: As Japan modernises its economy and society and its workforce, what's the role for a tradition like like the geisha in,
0: in business? That's an interesting question, Tim. The, the geisha is uh, often mistaken as being something that it actually isn't in the in the Japanese culture and, and, and within business. The purpose of a geisha is actually to facilitate conversations in business meetings and to facilitate business. If you were having an important meeting, you want to impress that potential business partner, you'll take them to one of the geisha-related restaurants or venues and... Having a geisha at 10 is actually quite impressive and very impressive in Japan because it's just so expensive. And what you would find is the geisha would know that you're the host, would do their best to make you look good with your partner um, and help facilitate conversation, asking questions about the partner. They'll do their research before and you can always provide them with, like, for example, talking points and with background notes so they understand what the purpose of the meeting is. So what do we see the geishas walking around Kyoto after dark or... Yeah, typically, the very high-skilled geisha will probably attend three or four events per night and they'll go from from one function and do maybe 10, 30, 40 minutes of interaction. Then they'll leave and go to the next one. So the high-quality geisha will tend to do a number of events to get the most, I guess, the most uh, benefit... That they can provide, the lower geisha, of course, will stay at the venue. So you've got so w- when you go to Kyoto, if you see geisha walking around during the day, it typically means that they're doing cultural training or they're doing activities in relation to their their skill development. If you see them at night, they're typically moving between functions. And you might host a dinner, and you may not want the geisha there the whole time. But if you're trying to impress your business partner, you may have an appearance of a geisha come for you know, thirty minutes or an hour do their, you know, do their facilitation and then leave. And then that gives you open time with your partner to do business. But I have to say, they're not that common for Westerners doing business in Japan. If you do experience that, fantastic. You're, you know, you're on a roll. Um, it's usually associated with very large old Japanese companies, especially those based around uh, Osaka, Kyoto, and maybe some parts of Tokyo like Akasaka. But if you were Australian and you hired a geisha for a meeting with a traditional Japanese
1: company, how would they feel about that?
0: <laughs> probably be a bit odd because they'd be impressed that you know about that. Um, you probably wouldn't do that, but uh, what you, might, you may find is to treat you as the and the Japanese company may do it for you. Now, um, Japan is, as you say, wealthy, a lot of savings, it's very sophisticated. What are the challenges that Australians face doing business in Japan nowadays? The challenge with Japan is the culture is so different. It's an island nation, and you have to remember, any island nation can do what it wants. It doesn't need to worry about its countries on its border because it's got an ocean around it. Indonesia is very similar too. In terms of Japan, the culture is so different that foreigners, Australians, will go in and focus on the culture but then get, get a little bit carried away focusing too much on the culture. And that can really wreck your business chances because... You're going there to do business, so you need to make sure that your business proposition is well prepared, you've done your homework, you know your competitors, you've got your pricing at least partially there, and then you go to Japan, then bang, you forget all about it, and you're just focused on the culture. That's a mistake I see often. So it can help to have someone with you that understands the culture to help handhold your way through. And that's, a, that's a service that I do with a lot of um, Australian companies and actually other nations as well. But it's about not forgetting your business proposition and it's very much about focusing on the meeting. Now, this will sound really dumb to most people doing business, but you need to go into the meeting with the next step and a purpose. And what I've found in Japan, because the culture can be a little bit or can be so overwhelming, that foreigners will go in and they'll forget why they're there. And they'll just like, think, if I leave this meeting and this person's happy, then I've done my job. You haven't. You haven't really sold your product. You haven't won the next meeting. The other one is that Japanese uh, hate saying no and the Japanese will never say no to you. But a way to work out whether you've got a real opportunity is put the ball in their court. So if you're in a business meeting and you want to see if they really, you know, they might be saying, you might be asking, do you like this product? They're saying, yes, yes, it's good. And we'll consider it. That could be a no, but it could be a yes too. So a way to really figure out where you stand with them, is to create a next step uh, such as, you know, would you review this and please come back to me? And don't push it too hard. But if they, they'll say, yes, of course, we'll review it and come back. If they don't come back, they never were. That means it's a no, we're not interested. If they do come back, it's a good yes. That's something to follow up on. Putting the ball in their court is a good way to work out the yes or no aspect in doing business in Japan. So a good example of differences with Japan and I guess getting fooled by them, is the the whole concept around obligation. So I will do something kind for you to oblige you to do something kind back for me. And that is actually really core in the culture there. And in terms of business, it's not much different. Now, gift giving is a part of that. I give you a gift, that means I want something back. Gift giving is, you know, with, with uh, Japan becoming part of the global business world, that's kind of dying off a lot and you can't walk into companies now with these big gifts. I mean, something that shows your company logo is okay, but you can't do gift giving to get to oblige or to win over business. But when I first went to Japan, I was, you know, my, in my 20s, I found the Japanese were really kind and they were always, you know, doing things for me and uh, they were obliging me to do things back, but I, I wasn't picking up on that obligation aspect and then I was being considered as being rude. Thinking like, why? And it's because I wasn't doing things in return. And that is uh, in in business a, a good way to almost oblige a response back to your proposition. Is uh, the company might say, okay, well, your product or service is great, and to oblige them to do something back for you, you might say, let me prepare a report that shows how you could use my product or service. Or basically, you create something on their behalf that benefits them. And that could be a report, that could be some kind of after work activity that, that helps them un- better understand their business. If you do that, it's almost obliging them to come back to you. And that's a really good way to to develop the business relationship with Japan. But not picking up on that cue is a mistake I made in my early, I guess my earlier time in Japan, which once I learned, I used to my advantage. When we were kids, um, you know, this family moved out of this
1: their house in Tokyo, near Keio University in 1969, for six months. They just moved out and let a family of six move in. Wow. I was amazed. That was incredibly generous. I mean, that was old Japan. But, you know, we did get a stream of Japanese students come to see us for the next 40 years. So I think in many ways, you know, we
0: tried to pay them back yeah, well Japanese culture is all based around harmony. I mean, you've got a population. Look at look at the basin of Tokyo. It's thirty-seven million people in the size of a big city like Melbourne, Houston, Los Angeles. Thirty-seven million people. But it works because people look out for everyone else. So the culture is defined about not being a problem to anyone else because they don't want those people to be a problem back to them. So it's it's paying it paying things forward. It's if I give generosity to this person, one day they'll give it back to me, and that is again the root of Japanese culture. And a mistake foreigners make in going to Japan is taking advantage of the politeness. So um, I've heard foreigners say, "Oh, yeah, Disneyland queues—they're crazy." But we just pushed in; no one complained. They didn't complain because it's, it's, it's part of their culture. Doesn't mean they weren't offended. Foreigners do eventually fit in. People do fit in, and it's all about being being one team and fighting for the same cause. So what's your final tip for doing business in Japan, Richard? Uh, Definitely be prepared. Um, Do your best to learn a little bit about the language. They do appreciate if you can say sentences here and there. And read up. Read up on the market. There's a lot of information out there. They'll appreciate that you've done your homework, but it shows that you respect them and their culture. Beautiful, Richard. Arigato. You're very welcome. Well, that's
1: it for this edition of The Airport Economist. I hope you enjoyed listening and picked up a few useful tips along the way. The Airport Economist podcast series is produced by Liv Proud, audio production by Darcy Thompson, and executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. The Airport Economist is recorded at the studios of Podcast One Australia. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au, download the app, or look us up on iTunes. And don't forget, there is also the Airport Economist TV series and book of the same name. You can find out more at our website, theairporteconomist.com, before you take off. Well, thanks for joining me. I look forward to our next business adventure together somewhere in the big
0: wide world. I'm Tim Harcourt, and I'm The Airport Economist.